Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Tammy Nelson. Tammy is a licensed psychotherapist, board-certified sexologist, certified sex therapist, and a certified Imago relationship therapist. She's the host of the Trouble with Sex podcast, and her books include Getting the Sex You Want and a new book with Sounds True called Open Monogamy, a guide to co-creating your ideal relationship agreement. Truth be told, when I saw it come up on the schedule that I was gonna be interviewing Dr. Tammy Nelson, the author of Open Monogamy, I thought, okay, this is an opportunity for me to look at something that I have judgment about, biases about. Can I be open to open monogamy? And the answer is yes. Tammy Nelson is so balanced and non-judgmental, and she helps us open to open monogamy. Take a listen. To begin with, Tammy, as a way to bring you forward for our listeners, here you are, a relationship expert and a sex therapist. How did you come to focus on open monogamy as the topic that you would write a book about that would become an educational platform for you? Why open monogamy? Well, you know, I've worked for so long with couples who have been struggling with how to find their sort of due north, like what is the shared value that they that they want to come back to or come home to. And over and over again, I think it's honesty, you know, it's transparency and how honest do people want to be. Ultimately, I've found over the years that people don't want to break up. They don't want to get divorced. They don't want to hurt each other's feelings. And when it comes right down to it, people really want to live in integrity, in integrity with who they are and what they want, and they want to do that with another person. And I really feel like the the definition of monogamy has changed so much over the past 30 years and that people want to stay with a primary or central partner, but they want some flexibility and some fluidity and they don't want to hurt each other. Okay, so when you say that the definition of monogamy has changed, help me understand you know, how you use that word and how you define open monogamy. Well, open monogamy means that you have a primary or central relationship or a spouse or someone you're committed to, and that is your sort of true north, like that's your priority. But that monogamy isn't necessarily like your grandparents' monogamy was. Like it's not so cut and dry that it just means you're never going to sleep with anyone else until you die. It may mean that um, that you're going to uh, open your monogamy agreement to include a conversation about, um, I don't know, looking at pornography together. Like I don't think anyone ever talked about that 30 years ago. I promise to love, honor you, and tell you every time I look at porn, <laughs> right? Like we have a totally different conversation now about what sexual fidelity looks like, or um, do we talk about our fantasies together? Do we 
share our curiosity together. I think people are honoring a new level of honesty about what their sexual connection it looks like. And frankly, I think we're staying together longer and wanting to stay sexual for longer. So people are looking at monogamy maybe as a, a way to find variety and adventure, but still stay together, not have to break up to find it with someone else and trade their partner in for a new one, which, mm-hmm. is, which is a new way to look at it, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, in writing the book, Open Monogamy, you did a lot of research and you interviewed a lot of people. Tell us a little bit about that, both the research and the interviews that you did. Yeah, I talked to a lot of different people in different forms of open relationships and asked them like how that worked and how they did it and what didn't work and what were the risks for them. And you know, some people really can manage, I think, a certain level of, um, of separateness and individuality. And some people need to know exactly what's going on with their partner all the time. I think part of it's a personality issue. And uh, some people can tolerate a level of uh, disclosure that other people can't. Some people like a don't ask, don't tell relationship. And I think the commonality was the um, the real caring for each other that all the couples seemed to have. There was no inkling at all of resentment or anger. Everyone seemed to really uh, express their relationship as a way of expanding their caring for each other. I found that it was like this new level of commitment that they really saw each other as an individual, that they didn't own each other's sexuality or relationship. And they found this joy in each other's happiness. It's an interesting way to look at relationships. How did you find these interview subjects? Um, Well, some of them were clients that I'd seen in my own therapy as couples who volunteered to to answer some questions. And some of them were um, as part of sort of a sex positive community. They gave me a name of someone else who gave me the name of someone else who gave me the name of someone else. And it's amazing the, uh, the number of people that are actually doing this now. I think um, I think it's been going on forever. You know, Open Marriage was a book that came out in the 70s, and we know that people were swinging in the 60s. But there's a different attitude now about open monogamy. Open marriage back then was more a uh, a dedication to having an equal relationship. It was kind of heterosexual, hetero-focused, and uh, a desire to have more gender roles that were more equal. Like, can you please help with the kids? And can, can you please change the diapers? And can everybody be a little bit more equal? And maybe uh, recognition that women wanted uh, sexual pleasure too, which was not so evenly balanced back then. Now, I think, you know, women are like the gatekeepers of, of open monogamy. It doesn't really happen unless women are the ones that say, okay, let's do it. And I think that has a lot to do with how much we've changed around women's sexuality, women expecting to have good sex, owning their own sexuality, owning the fact that they want to have orgasms and good sex. And that's been a big shift over the past couple decades. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me in your description of open monogamy, honesty is critical, not negotiable. And if see, if I'm understanding you correctly, having a primary partner is also part of your definition. And then in the book, you go further to describe a continuum. Can you share a little bit what that continuum is of people who identify as being openly monogamous? Yeah, so there's a continuum of monogamy from, uh, if you imagine on the left side of the continuum, people having a conversation about, like, is it okay to have fantasies about something else, something or someone else, or to flirt with other people? Like, for some people, having a fantasy is kind of a slippery slope. And if you're attracted to someone else, or you feel like, oh, I've been thinking about this other person, I should probably come home and tell you because... It's kind of a, um, 
you know, craving my neighbor sort of experience. And that might be dangerous to our relationship. So we should share that openly. Other people feel like, God, if I had to tell you every time I was hot for someone I saw in the grocery store, we'd be talking all the time. And, but those things are explicitly talked about. Like sometimes we have this implicit assumption that, um, oh, we should never share that. Or of course, you're going to tell me if that happens, but we don't necessarily talk about that. And so as part of that monogamy continuum, now that becomes an explicit thing that we agree or, or agree not to talk about. And people feel differently about that in a relationship. And that can change over time too. Like maybe we don't talk about it now, but at a different phase of our relationship, that becomes more important. And then as you go up the monogamy continuum, like, is it okay to have deeply connected emotional relationships? You know, is it okay to have a work spouse, for instance, someone you're deeply connected to at your job that you spend all your time and energy sharing things with, but you have no energy left for me when you get home. Is that something that we should talk about? Is that a risk? Is that an an emotional affair? Like what constitutes an emotional affair? And is that like a breach to our monogamy? Is that something we need to talk about? And then if you do want to open your monogamy even further, is it okay to have sexual experiences together? Like, can we go to some kind of like a sex party and just walk around and look at other people? That's kind of intriguing. Or even looking at pornography together. Is that something you want to share? Or we start to negotiate like the difference between privacy and secrecy. Is masturbation private or should we share it with each other? Does it feel like a betrayal if it's, if we catch each other? Um, So the level of transparency along the continuum is, is the thing that would begin to process together. And then if you just, let's keep going. Yeah. Let's keep going. Let's go all the way down. the We're going, we're going to go all the way. And then if you decide, okay, well, it's okay to have, you know, sexual experiences where you're together, but sharing, then what if you're having sex actually physically together? Like if you have a threesome or moresome, but only if you're in the same room, Uh, you know, it's not officially like swinging where you go off in one room and I go off in another. I don't know if you remember key parties from way back where people would drop their keys in a bowl. And at the end of the night, you would pick up the keys and whoever keys you got, you'd go home with them. It's like a totally separate sexual experience with someone else where your partner wasn't there. Um, you know, maybe you agree that that's okay. Maybe you agree that you can have sex with other people on vacation. Maybe you agree to have a don't ask, don't tell relationship where you can do it, but I don't want to know about it. Or maybe you have a relationship with other people, but you really want to know all the, all the precursors, all the negotiations so that you can bring that energy home. A lot of the couples I talked to found that they did have jealousy. Jealousy seems like a normal human emotion, but they almost eroticized it. Like it was kind of hot to think about their partner with someone else as long as they could bring it home and talk about it. And then all the way at the other far end of the monogamy continuum is polyamory, which is poly means many and amory means love. And it's people that can integrate romantic, emotional, sexual relationships into their, into their current relationship so that you can have multiple partners, kind of like a village, you know, you can kind of outsource different needs in your in your marriage or in your committed partnership. And some people can do that quite well. And it's really helpful to have multiple partners in your relationship. And I think people who can process a lot of their feelings and communicate, do it quite well. Um, Other people try it. Maybe they move backwards on the monogamy continuum because it doesn't work, but you can go back and forth on there. Do you find that, uh, people are just built differently. Like you talk to some people, some people come into your therapy practice and they're a different kind of person than the person that would find themselves all the way to that far end of the polyamory part of open monogamy. And other people are built for polyamory. And Or, or do you think that that's just more like we've been enculturated into these ideas by our society? It's not really how we're natively built as people. How do you see it? 
I just so it's so complex. You know, people ask me this all the time. Like, are are we born monogamous, or am I meant to be polyamorous? And I I don't know if it's sort of an evolutionary thing, or I don't know if we're born monogamous or non-monogamous. I don't think we're born knowing how to eat with a fork either. Like, I think I think we learn. You know, like I think monogamy is a choice, just like non-monogamy. And I think you can make that choice every day. Like we have a prefrontal cortex. We can pick, we can choose, and we can practice. And some days are much harder than others, whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous. I mean, it's really a choice and it's really a practice. And all those things are complex and difficult. Um, I think some people really do well in complex multi-relationships it's kind of like um if you grow up with a bunch of siblings and you just really like to have a bunch of uh, people around you and you do really well in groups where everyone can support you and um, you can share really well you play well with others some people can't some people don't like to share they don't play well with others they get really jealous um they're more introverted you know, they can't imagine staying home and waiting for their partner to come home from a date. Like that's just totally uh, freaks them out. And other people are like, no, it's fine. Go. I want a night off. (laughs) So this whole question that I'm sure you've been asked a lot where people are like, well, let's talk about the human animal. And some people will make an argument, you know, look at nature, look how many species are not monogamous. And then people say, yeah, but look at these species. They are. What do you think about that when people try to look at this question from an evolutionary biology standpoint? Well, you know, we used to always think that there were certain animals like geese that mated for life. And if you're a goose person, I think you should turn off this podcast right now because I'm going to tell you very depressing news that geese, although they do mate for life, the female geese are very promiscuous. Like if they found now with DNA testing that they can look at the eggs under the female goose and find that they will mate with several different geese to ensure the propagation of their eggs. And so they may have like emotional mates for life, but not necessarily sexual mates for life. So they might have geese sex with a lot of different partners to make sure they get, you know, enough eggs to perpetuate the baby eggs. Um, But, you know, you can have emotional mates and emotional partners forever. And I think that's pretty common for many many humans, you know, we've seen this in gay men forever. Um, And not to generalize that all gay men are like this, but um, many gay men can have emotional monogamy and sexual um, flexibility. And now, you know, for heterosexual couples that are struggling with it, it's many times that conversation of can we be emotionally monogamous and have some sexual fluidity in our lives? Um, what is that like to be to be connected and yet, um, you know, sexually open? Is that a possibility? Now, Tammy, there's a lot to talk about here and we're going to get into it. But I want to uh, take a moment uh, to share with you that before I started reading Open Monogamy, I thought to myself, huh, God, you know, I've seen so many couples open their relationships. It's the end of their marriage. It's the beginning of the end. They're just doing it because their marriage isn't really working. So I had a lot of judgments. I had a lot of judgments. And I thought to myself, am I even really the right person to be interviewing Tammy Nelson about open monogamy for Sounds True? I have so many judgments about this from the perspective of someone who's been married for 20 years in a closed monogamous relationship and probably couldn't function in a different type of format successfully based on my character formation, personality, temperament, uh, fear. I don't know what, we'll get into it, who knows, but based on who I am, I couldn't function any differently than the way I'm functioning. I know that about myself. But then, you know, I read this sentence in the opening chapter of Open Monogamy, and what you wrote is all consensual agreements between consenting adults should be normalized. 
And there was a way that your book, Open Monogamy, really helped me drop all judgment. And I'm curious from your perspective, how you got to this place where you're not making a judgment about what two consenting adults decide to do. So I'd like to hear more about that from your perspective. Yeah, my goal is really to help people to communicate and make explicit what they want. That there's so many non-consensual, non-monogamous relationships that people have been cheating since the beginning of time, right? They've been non-consensual without permission um, and hiding and lying and cheating. And that a lot of the pain and misery in relationships comes from the dishonesty. And my theory is that the more people can communicate and be explicit about what they want, uh, the more connected they feel. Now, that doesn't mean they're always going to agree on what they want, but it's the communicating about the potential and the possibilities. A lot of people will communicate about the potential possibilities and never even act out on them, but feel closer just from talking about what their fantasy is or what they've thought about as the possibility. And once the sort of the permission has been granted, like, yeah, if that's what you want, I'm open to it. Then they feel like they never have to do it. It's like the gates have been open and they feel respected and honored in who they are as an individual. And that, um, that open door policy makes them feel loved. And I think, you know, I have a lot of my own feelings about it, to be honest. And well, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about that. I want to hear about you personally, because I've come forward here and, you know, talked about my 20 year lesbian white picket fence existence, <laughs> basically. Yeah. 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 I mean, I get triggered by a lot of um, a lot of the couples that I see that are trying to make their relationship open because they're really trying to continue their affairs. Like they're just trying to make it work to um, justify some kind of hidden uh, hidden behavior or they're trying to manipulate their partner into opening it because they really want just want to get away with what they want. Or uh, what I see a lot is this sort of second adolescence. So suddenly you're in middle age and the kids grow up and you're like, uh, I just want to do whatever I want. Don't tell me what to do you know, I'm going to come home when I want and stop trying to stop trying to control me. <laughs> and they're texting under the kitchen table and they're, they're sort of parentifying their partner who's saying, I'm, I don't know what you're doing. I'm not telling you what to do. I just want to know when you're coming home. You know, like this, this interesting parentified adolescent thing that happens that really, I think that people are trying to like redo their adolescence. And I think that's because we live so long now that we have time for a second adolescence where we try to do it over again. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to hear more about you personally and where you are on the uh, open monogamy continuum. But before we get there, mm -hmm. that's a cliffhanger here. How does somebody know in their own relationship whether or not they're having a second adolescence or whether or not they finally have the courage to come forward and talk to their partner, the time's finally right for this. I mean, how do we sort that out in our own inner life? I think the more adult you feel in your relationship is determined by the level of um, cooperation. Like if you're feeling like you have to sneak around behind your partner's back and you have to ask permission, this is not about setting the rules for you and your partner rules implies that they're going to be broken or followed. And so it's not about setting the rules. It's more about um, setting boundaries for yourself and what I call red lines. So red lines are like, this is not going to be acceptable for me. I can't, I can't deal with it. If you're going to go have sex with someone without protection, or I can't deal with it. If you want to have, a relationship with someone from your job or someone that our, I can't handle it if our kids find out. Like those are the red lines for me that, you know, can't be crossed. That's an example. Um, and boundaries are the things that are important to me, but I can be flexible about them. Like um, I can imagine that these are the things that we might want to talk about, but um, 
you know, like I'm a white picket fence monogamous person, but I can imagine that if you wanted to go to, you know, a sex party and walk around that I might be able to go with you. Cause I'm just so curious about what, what the hell a sex party is. <laughs> and I, I might want to go and just look as long as we don't touch anybody, <laughs> you know, like that's a boundary and a curiosity. And that's different than I'm going out and I'm not telling you where I'm going and don't tell me what to do. Right. Well, I think the big question, of course, that comes up is what about when I declare my personal boundaries and my partner has a different set and they don't line up? What do we do? Does that mean we're just not meant to be able to stay together and continue in an open monogamous relationship because our personal boundaries don't line up? Or that's when we come see Tammy Nelson for a session? Yeah. So that's where I do see a lot of people. That's like the trigger that brings people into therapy. And we have a lot of uh, what I call what if conversations. So what if we did this? What if we did that? And then we have the possibilities. So the possibilities always have uh, problems, but also positives. So the possibility is we could go to the sex party and it could, you know, it could be interesting and fun. There could be a problem like you could love it and I could hate it. And I could be standing by the door going, come on, Tammy, let's go. Um, or the positives could be, yeah, we could both have fun. It could be kind of interesting and we could be curious about it and just find it like a lark. And it could be kind of sexually exciting for both of us. And then we could leave and bring that energy home. So always talk about whatever the possibility is as having problems, but also positives, so that we can look at both sides of it. And most people need to have those consenting conversations for a long time before you actually do anything. And the people that do well in these kind of relationships are the people that can really communicate and really talk about all this stuff. Now there is, there is a wall that you hit where you can get to like communication exhaustion where you just over talk about things to death with, before you do anything. And that can be uh, kind of defeating for people. But uh, I think the people that are able to discuss things openly do much better. Right. But wouldn't you say that that's true in any relationship? Whoever you are as a human, you're going to do a whole lot better dealing with other humans if you can communicate well. Wouldn't you say that's true? Yes. And I think that may be why these types of relationships are growing in popularity because they tend to be people who practice this, not just like give it lip service, but really practice it. So they talk about it before anything happens. They listen to each other. They sort of, you know, go through all the possibilities and the potential before anything happens. And then when they do something, they talk about how was that for you? How was that for me? What was positive about it? What was negative? What do you want to repeat? How are you feeling? What do you need for comfort? And then what do you want to do next time? Which is not necessarily what we all do all the time, right? In our normal relationship world. And so I think people who do this well are really, really pretty good at that. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of the reason that they do well in their relationships. Okay. I need to uh, surface. Here's my big judgment. Here we go. The one that I came into this discussion with. Okay. It was interesting to me that you're a certified Imago relationship therapist. Mm -hmm. So in, in my view, that means you've been trained by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt and their deep work about how relationships can be so healing uh, when there's this type of security that you have with your partner and you can go back and do all this early repair work from whatever experiences people had in their early life. And I think the judgment I've had is that when you start bringing other people in, it's like the chalice is broken and you don't have that same kind of holding space for this deep healing work to happen. So I'm curious uh, what you have to say about that. Yeah, so when I work with people that have multiple partners, for example, like they can come in with like a pod of people, with multiple partners. And in Imago therapy, we talk about that you, there's never a coincidence that you choose a partner that you choose. We always choose someone who's going to finish off the unfinished business of our childhood, right? And um, so when we see people in, in, in a couple, 
it's really clear that people are together because they're healing their inner wounds and they're growing as people. And when I see people in a group, like a pod of people who have multiple partners, I see all of their sibling issues. It's like all of the sibling issues are triggered in that group. So not only are you dealing with all of your parental projections, but now you're dealing with all of your sibling stuff. And I think that as a society, we are moving into all of our community issues, that it's not just about me or you, it's about can we exist and heal as a community, as a village, as our connections to others. And I really see this as an expanded uh, moment in our culture to look at how we relate to other people, not just how we relate to each other, but how we relate to groups so that we can all connect in a bigger group. Maybe we can all uh, exist in bigger, more expanded relationships. Maybe we all need that. I think in the pandemic, you kind of felt that like a lot of us were isolated and home with a small pod of safe people. And we realized that, you know, there was a craving for more uh, support and more connection. And uh, maybe it is possible to have that in our lives. And I think people are working towards that, perhaps on an evolutionary level. I, I don't think this would be happening if it wasn't evolving towards something that maybe we need spiritually and emotionally. Mm -hmm. So you said open monogamous relationships are on the rise. What are the statistics? Um, well, it is interesting. Right now they're saying four to five percent of everyone is in some kind of consensually non-monogamous relationship. I think it's hard to get accurate statistics if we don't know exactly what people are saying is a consensually non-monogamous relationship. And if we don't know what age groups are being um, are being asked. So I think now that the we're kind of creeping out of the pandemic and coming out of the cave and back out into the light. Um, we'll have more statistics on that because we are getting some research now on what the pandemic has done to our sex lives and to our intimate relationships. And I think we're going to have more information on how people are choosing non-monogamy because um, I think there is a, an uprising towards um towards taking some risks outside of traditional monogamy. People had a lot of sort of shut-in feelings and now they're taking more adventurous looks at how they can expand their marriages, but they're not getting divorced. They're not breaking up, which I think is a, also an interesting comment about what happens in enforced domesticity for so long. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna... Um circle back to my question, just because I really want to uh, drill all the way down, if it's okay, Tammy, with you, which has to do with this belief I had come to previous to this conversation, that there was some kind of depth of both of healing and transformation, and I'll say love, depth of love that's possible in an exclusively, traditionally monogamous relationship that somehow some of the energy would like leak out of the system or something. Like if you, like if it was an alchemical vessel, something like that, and you just wouldn't want to ever break, break the vessel, break the chalice. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that I've just like bought into that, or maybe that's just true for some people, but also not true for others and just leave it at that. Well, I know what my clients say or the people that I interview, you know, one of the arguments is, um, you know, if you have more than one child, you know, it doesn't feel like having more than one child takes away from the love you have for one of them, that you can love more than one kid. And it doesn't feel like you have to divide up the love. And that, you know, that makes sense to me. I get it. Um, I also think that there is something to be said for the developmental phases of relationship. Like before you settle down or get married, we encourage people to date around, like don't settle down, quote unquote, like find yourself, date a bunch of people and then choose. And so that's kind of a non-monogamous time of life. And then you settle down and you sort of, uh, you know, bed down with someone 
uh, really to create a family, gay or straight. It's sort of a, a monogamous time in your life to create that safety for family time. And, and then a lot of people will have um, that family period of time. And then if they have kids or they, they get older, there's a period of time when the kids are older, when people start to stick their head up and look around for, for multiple partners. Now, whether they cheat or open their marriage, it does seem to be age related um, where people start to open again to non-monogamy and then you get older and you get really tired and you just go back home and say, okay, I'm done. I just want to stay home with one person. So it may be that it is developmentally related. It could be that it is personality related, although they haven't seen any research to back that up. Some people have connected it to attachment styles that, you know, people who are avoidantly attached, maybe using it to avoid intimacy. People who are anxious and insecurely attached may not do well in this style of relationship. And I haven't really seen that. Maybe I haven't seen enough people to make that overarching statement. Um, uh, You know, you, you may be right. It might be some people are just more comfortable in a one-on-one relationship and less comfortable with taking the risk. It certainly is a risk. There's no guarantee, even if you have an agreement that says we're not going to fall in love with anyone else, or we're not going to be emotionally attached to anyone else. There's no way to prevent that, right? Especially if you're having sex with someone else, you can't really prevent the potential of falling in love with someone else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, Tammy, it's back to you, over to you. Uh, tell us, where are you on the open monogamy continuum, if you're willing to share? I mean, here you are, you're a sexologist, you must get these kinds of direct questions. I hope, is it okay that I'm asking? Yes, all the time people are going to ask me. Okay. It's so funny because, uh, you know, this is my sixth book. And a couple books ago, I wrote Getting the Sex You Want, which was using Imago therapy, but to talk about sex. And my husband, this is my second marriage, my husband, bragged to everyone that that book was totally about him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And then my next book was new monogamy, which is redefining your relationship after infidelity. So everyone asked him, was he the cheater or was I the cheater? And so he had to tell everyone, no, we didn't have an affair. That was all about his, my clients. And now people are, of course, everyone's asking if we have an open relationship and what kind. And um, this book is definitely written with, Um, all of our practice of relationship agreement. So every book I've written, we have practiced every single exercise in the, in the books or else I wouldn't try them with my clients. And I certainly wouldn't write about them. We have worked on all of these uh, consensual agreements and they're all based on trust and not safety. Safety can sort of be a eroticism killer, but trust takes a lot of risk. And so our relationship is totally open, whatever the two of us agree on, whatever we want to do, whatever conversations we want to have. But right now at this time in our life, uh, I'm so busy and so tired that I can barely be, (laughs) I can barely find time to be with him. But we do have what I call a living apart together relationship. He spends a lot of time on the East coast, taking care of his 97 year old mother for about four to six weeks at a time. And I'm on the, on the West coast. So we spend a lot of time living apart. Um, and so I think an open relationship where we agree that if we want to be with other people, we can really works for us. Um, I, I just don't really pull the trigger because I'm too tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you, you said, this interesting thing that, uh, you know, safety can be uh, an eroticism killer. And I pulled this uh, sentence from open monogamy that got my attention. Don't stay in a closed monogamous relationship out of fear. Don't stay in a closed out of fear. And yet I imagine a lot of people are afraid of what you described a few minutes earlier, which is if we open it up, either I or my partner will end up having sex with someone, falling in love with them. And then the fear is that this will be the end of something I hold so dear, so central, so sacred. And that's a real fear. So now here I am, I'm acting with this prioritization of safety. So I'm wondering if you can address that. 
Yeah, I think the risk of having sex with someone else and falling in love is always there. Whether you quote unquote give, give your partner permission to do so or not. And the more you talk about it, the safer, quote unquote, you are. You know, Peggy Vaughn, who she passed away now, but she used to say, she wrote The Myth of Monogamy. And she used to say, you know, just because you got married and promised your monogamy one time at the altar, that's not a lifelong preventative deal. Like that isn't, it's like saying, you know, I told you I loved you when I married you, so I shouldn't have to tell you. I'll, I'll remind you if I if I stop loving you, but I shouldn't have to say it again. You know, like the reality is, is that it's not a it doesn't prevent you from falling in love with someone else. Um, you know, the permission thing is an interesting idea that if I give you permission to be with someone else, then somehow that's a risk. Um, I think it helps if you are considering any kind of openness to consider uh, the veto power. In other words, like if either of you are feeling like this, this could be a little risky. I don't particularly like this person, or I feel really insecure about this. Then you have the power to veto this behavior. Like, okay, Tammy, I don't like this other person and maybe we should stop there. That um, tends to add more trust to the relationship, but I think what I mean by safety versus trust is, you know, we create safety for our family, for children. We feel safe the more familiar familial we are, the more familiar. And but we don't want to have sex with our family. So the safer we are, the more familial we are, the less sexual we are. And um, trust is different. Trust means we can take risks within the relationship because we trust our partner. Um, but it also means we can push our limits and push our edge knowing that that person will still be here for us. That's scary. It's much scarier than feeling safe, um, but it means we can grow. Like eroticism is about taking risks. You know, after you have really good sex, you should feel like a little embarrassed. You should feel like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I made that noise. You know, eroticism is a... Um, is a way to push your own boundaries and doing that with someone that you trust is really powerful. Now, let, let me ask you about this veto power, because if I entered an openly monogamous relationship where my partner could veto someone, let's say they veto this person because I'm falling in love with this person, mm-hmm. but I'm already, mm-hmm. I've already taken a bite of the apple. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm falling in love. Mm-hmm. And then now there's, this seems like this is a setup for a pretty major conflict. They're vetoing someone that I'm in the middle that I'm quite uh, smitten with. Yeah, that could be problematic because that sets up that sort of familial parental thing of like, you can't can't date that person anymore. Yeah. So now you're gonna what, sneak around? You're gonna feel tragically prevented of seeing your loved one like that. It definitely sets up a problem. I, I totally understand that. And You know, I think the more honest you are about coming to your partner first and doing what I call preventing, which is I need to vent and tell you that I'm freaking out because I have feelings for this person. And let's talk about it before it gets to that place. I think that could be helpful. But again, this is a total risk. It's just like if you weren't in an openly monogamous relationship and you met someone at work, um, you know, just because you're married doesn't mean you're dead. Like you are probably going to be attracted to other people at some point in your life. And how honest can you be? Open monogamy also means that you're open about your feelings and you're open about conversations. Can you be open about coming to your partner and saying, I have feelings for this person or I'm attracted to this person. And I think that means we need to talk. You know, this could be risky. Maybe I need, yeah. Maybe we need to have a longer conversation about what's going on with us. Yeah. So uh, one of the focuses of your new book is the subtitle, A Guide to Co-Creating Your Ideal Relationship Agreement. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, gosh, you know, the truth is my partner and I, we haven't talked about a lot of these things. There's a lot that's under the surface. And there's a lot of desires that I have that aren't being addressed. I want to move forward and explore 
who knows at what level of the continuum, but I want to begin exploring some kind of open monogamy agreement. What are your do's and don'ts for doing so? Mm, such a good question. Uh, I would not uh, start the conversation with, I met someone else. That's very no. scary. No. <laughs> yeah, that's very scary. Or I'm in love with someone no, else. I listened to a podcast, you know, <laughs> Jesus. I think I listened to a podcast is actually a great way to open the conversation. I listened to the Tammy Tammy podcast. And and I'm wondering um, how you feel about, you know, opening relationships or how you feel about having a more fluid kind of monogamy. Like, I'm so curious now what that might mean and how do you feel about that in starting a what if conversation? You know, what if we did this? What if we did that? What would it be like if we did this? And have you ever heard of that? And do we know anyone that does this? And have we ever seen anyone on TV? And Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith just came out and said they have an open relationship. And what do we think of them? And, you know, to really begin the conversation as a what if, not as a when do we do it and who do we sleep with? And I really like the neighbor and your best friend is cute. I would keep all specific people out of the conversation. And I would um, also take away any mention of let's start it next week. Um, but really talk about it as if it's a fantasy conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think this notion of increased eroticism, increased sexual satisfaction, it makes sense to me that open monogamy could deliver that. I offered you my bias towards the depth and healing and transformation that I think this closed monogamy can offer. What I'm curious is beyond sexual fulfillment, uh, which is a big deal. What else do you think can come from open monogamy? That's like, look, here are some of the real benefits, Tammy, to, to open up to and to see. Um, well, I really think that people who have multiple partners actually really enjoy the potential of finding new parts of themselves. So it's not necessarily that people look for other partners. They look to be other parts of themselves. So finding a different part of themselves because they're with someone else, they can bring that other part of themselves into the relationship. And suddenly they have an expanded experience of being together. So you may be a different part with a different partner that suddenly your wife has never seen before. Right. And you know, suddenly you have a much sure. richer experience of each other. Sure. That you may, you may not have even have known that that part existed. Yeah. But, you know, that's what I feel like means, I mean by living in integrity, that you can integrate all those parts of yourself into your relationship. It's not a moral issue. It's like, a, uh, you know, a, a remembering those dismembered parts of yourself. Yeah, that's helpful. That's good. Now, Tammy, you know, my eyes were opened in reading Open Monogamy to uh, some vocabulary that I was never familiar with before, and you have an interesting glossary at the end of the book. So I'm going to throw uh, some of these words out to you, and you can explain to our audience what they mean. Let's start with solo poly. Mm -hmm. What's that? That is when someone is an individual solo person but who wants to date other people who are polyamorous. So they may not want to commit to just a single partner, but they could date people who have multiple partners. Okay. A metamore. A metamore is like um, if you were in an open relationship and you had a lover, that's how your partner would refer to that lover. It's like everyone's lover in the relationship. So your, your husband comes to visit you out there in Southern California and says, I'd love to meet my metamore. I'd love your to metamor. meet your metamore. Yeah. I'd love to meet your metamore. Mm -hmm. How would you feel if your husband came to LA and said that? I would feel like we had already had a lot of conversations about whoever I was with. And I'd be thrilled if that was the case. If I, I'd be thrilled that I had enough time to have a metamor and that and that I had enough time to bring them over. 
<laughs> you know, which actually does bring up an interesting point because, you know, I was reflecting on my uh, closed monogamy status <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, I barely have time for the relationship I'm in. I'm very work focused, very mission driven. And then I have my whole internal life, whatever. I, there's no, I don't have time and at all, like not even close. And also the complexity there's the actual time and then the complexity that comes with it and the emotional complexity. I think that's actually a really, a really big factor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Myself as well. I get a little jealous of when I hear people managing their open relationships, I always ask them about their calendar. Like, how do you fit that in? Like what days of the week do you see them and how long? And yeah, I get a little triggered by that. Okay. We'll go back to our vocabulary here. Kitchen table, Polly. Kitchen table poly is when you're polyamorous, you have multiple partners, and everyone comes over and has breakfast together. So you might have a partner, your partner has a partner, they all sleep over on a Saturday night, and everyone gets together on Sunday and has brunch. Like everybody knows each other and everybody is part of the family. Is that a, a popular form of, of open monogamy? Yeah, people who, are, poly. people who are polyamorous tend to want everyone to be part of the family, part of their relationship. Right. Okay, a unicorn. A unicorn usually refers to uh, the search for a woman who can be part of a relationship that will sleep with both partners, uh, but will not threaten their monogamous relationship. Okay, a thruple. A thruple is. Thruple. Oh, sorry, you can t you can tell I'm out I'm outside the known. It's okay. Thruple. That's okay. this is not Thanks. a common this is not a common term not yet okay. anyway. Um, a thruple is a committed uh, threesome in a partnership. So, like two people might have a third person who is a boyfriend or whatever who is you know a committed partner. They don't need another partner, but they're not as important as the primary partners. And here's the, here's the last uh, new vocabulary word for today, compersion. Compersion. So compersion is actually a made up word. Of course it was invented in California, um, which is, was to mean the opposite of jealousy because we don't have a word in our language to mean the opposite of jealousy. It means that you find joy or happiness seeing your partner happy with someone else, that it gives you joy that they're happy. And it makes you feel good to see them finding joy either in a sexual relationship or an emotional connection with someone else. It doesn't take away from your uh, feeling of connection or happiness with them. I'm not uh, feeling very positive that I'll use this word in a sentence anytime <laughs> soon as something that I'm feeling. But I'm curious, uh, do you feel compersion when you hear about... Uh, whatever might be happening with your uh, beloved out on the East coast. Do you feel compersion? Um, you know, I'm pretty jealous. I think. Oh, you are. Well, that's I, very interesting. How do you do this? How do you do it, Tammy? I think a lot of people are jealous just because they have uh, open monogamy or open relationships. Doesn't mean they're not jealous. People still have normal human emotions and normal human responses. I think um, the people that I know that are doing this that do feel jealousy have a tendency to work more on their jealousy and uh, see it as their own personal sort of spiritual work instead of focusing it on him. Like, you know, you bastard, you're doing this to me. I would turn it to myself and say, why, what is this triggering for me? Why am I, why am I feeling insecure about this? Do, am I afraid of losing something? Am I afraid I'm not good enough? Is it bringing out my insecurity? Am I feeling old? Am I feeling, uh, not good enough. Like, what is it? Ha what's happening here for me? And then using it as a tool for my own growth. But then let's go into this a little bit more. So you do come to some conclusion that I'm feeling X, Y, Z, old and insecure. What do you do next? <laughs> um, remind myself of all the wonderful things about myself that I have going. <laughs> and that if somebody's going to leave me for someone younger, let's say, then there's nothing I can do about it. Whether we're open about it or closed about it, I have absolutely no control over another person and that I'm going to feel good about myself because of what I bring to the table and who I am as a person. And you know, that 
other people are going to have their own decision-making process. And I can't control that. Even if I tell them you can never see anybody else, you're not allowed to be attracted to anyone else. It's not going to control that. It's not going to control their behavior. Like people are going to do what they're going to do and they can meet someone in the grocery store um, any, any moment and find themselves attracted to someone. It's always going to be their choice. And knowing that I'm in a securely attached relationship where we have so much history and we have kids and we have, you know, just years and years of background together and so much investment together that I trust that we have a strong enough bond that I don't think my husband's going to leave me for someone younger, but if he does good for him. <laughs> if he does good for him. Yeah. Good for him. I hope he's happy. And You'll feel compersion. <laughs> I'll try. I'll work really hard to feel compersion. Uh -huh. Okay. Towards the end of open monogamy, you write alternative relationships are the future. And I had a moment. I thought, is that true? What convinces you that that's the case? I think what convinces me is that we've been going on the same model of marriage for like 200 years. And you know, we've had a lot of shifts in sexuality. We've had the sexual revolution. We've had a revolution in um, openness about sexual orientation and gender. And But marriage is still kind of the same. It's still run by these sort of religious organizations. We're still going on these explicit monogamy agreements, these vows that have not really changed that much. And yet, you know, we have... Uh, gay marriage is legal. Like so much has changed in our assumptions about relationships, but marriage, you know, we're, we kind of suck at marriage. Like it's, a, it's pretty easy to get into a marriage. It's really hard to get out of a marriage. Divorce is still devastating. It's still run by adversarial legal system, which costs a fortune and it's terrible for families. Like we still haven't figured that figured it out. And so it's bound to change just sociologically it's bound to shift and as it shifts as the younger generations decide you know what my parents got divorced their parents got divorced they cheated they lied i'm not going to do that i i know that i'm going to live a long time i'm going to be attracted to more than one person throughout my lifetime and i don't want to hurt the people that i love and so i'm going to do it differently and more and more young people and more and more people this generation are saying, I don't want to do it the same way that's always been done. It's just not going to work for me. We know people are getting married later than ever before. We know people are putting off children later than ever before. We know women are making the decision about whether or not to get married. We know women are the gatekeepers of open relationships. They're deciding when to do it and when to stop. Um, we know women are the gatekeepers of sexuality. So I think as our society changes, I think relationships and marriage are going to change. And, and just to ask you to clarify that, that women are the gatekeepers of open monogamy. I think some people might say, no, you know, it's the, it's the man who's knocking on the door and saying, this is what I want. I know that's not, it's not the women in the relationships. Why, why do you say that? What do you mean by gatekeepers? Well, it's interesting because it's true in heterosexual relationships Men do usually come up with the idea first, but it doesn't happen unless the females say, okay, I'll do it. And then my own clinical experience, I don't have any research for this. My clinical experience has been that the men want to stop sooner. And then the women are like, no, I'm not stopping. <laughs> this has been, this is working for me. I'm good. And that's just my own clinical observation. I don't know if that's true across the board. I'd be curious what your listeners think and what their experience has been. Um, but it, you know, unless the female partners agrees to do it, they're not going to do it. Most people are not coerced or forced into an open relationship by its nature. Uh, it's open and it's voluntary. So one final question, Tammy, wherever we find ourselves, whoever's listening on this continuum from closed monogamy and then the whole range that you described to us of open monogamy, wherever we find ourselves, it seems clear to me from listening to you that being honest, honest with ourselves, 
honest with our partner is a through line through everything that you do in your work, having worked with so many thousands of couples. What else would you say, in addition to being honest with ourselves and with each other, are really the most important qualities to you of a relationship that is thriving, that's vital, that's alive? I think uh, being flexible, like knowing that you, your relationship and you are going to change. Like you might feel one way today, like Tammy, you might feel like no way I'm ever opening it, but tomorrow you might feel different and being open and flexible around, you know, different stages of our lives. You might be open today and decide, you know what, this isn't working for me. And I want to, I want to go back to a more traditional monogamous relationship next week, but always being flexible with yourself and with each other, I think is the key here that the rigidity is the opposite of pleasure, right? And so to keep it flexible means to stay in a pleasurable relationship. And I think that's part of it. That's the key. I've been speaking with Tammy Nelson. She's the author of the new book, Open Monogamy, a guide to co-creating your ideal relationship agreement. An agreement that might change over the years. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thank you for your bravery and your honesty and your straightforwardness. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world 